Hello. 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 There we are. Welcome back. It's the dark time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere while this strange year draws to an end. But don't worry, we'll bring you some entertainment and some insights today. So welcome to our new episode of the second show of this season. My name is Ina Feistritzer. I'm the chief editor of the Next Conference and Platform and happy to be your host today. In our monthly show, we welcome great international doers and thinkers who are thought leaders in their fields and help us to shift our perspectives on digital business. Most of this season's show guests also contributed to our next book, The Great Redesign, as did Thomas Müller, innovation expert and design lead at Accenture Interactive. We will talk to him in a bit, but before that, I'm happy to welcome once again our show moderators, Monique van Dusseldorp from Amsterdam. Hello. And David Metten from London. Hi, everyone. How are you? Very well, thank you. Feeling very cheerful here in London because the first British people have already been vaccinated. Yeah, <laughs> whoop, whoop, including, a, including a 93-year-old man called William Shakespeare, <laughs> which we all enjoyed. Perfect, yes. How about you, Monique? Oh, I, yesterday I had an event, it was live-streamed, but I actually had to go to a building and take a train and there were people there and... I don't know, it just made me realize that I've been lonely, you know, it's, I'm, yeah, being at home, meeting strangers, that's much nicer. Anyway, it will come back, it will come back. It'll come back, definitely. And what was the most exciting thing that caught your eye uh, since we last met on the show, David? Well, lots has been catching my eye recently, but last week I have to say I was caught particularly by some news on the future of work, and it wasn't the Salesforce acquisition of Slack, as exciting as that is, it was news that Microsoft have filed a patent for special technology, AI fuel technology, that's going to rate the productivity and effectiveness of meetings. So this uh, technology is going to use sensors and it's going to use AI and facial recognition to make judgments on things like your body language, your facial expressions and your verbal contributions when you're in meetings. And this can apply in a physical meeting in a room or a meeting on MS Teams. And then it's going to rate the meeting and tell managers, was this an effective meeting? Was it a productive meeting? It's even going to give advice on future meetings, what time of day to set them up who to invite, who not to invite, because they're not very productive, apparently, all of this kind of stuff. So do are we facing a future now where we're going to be rated um, in our meetings by artificial intelligence? It feels kind of scary. Uh, and then uh, uh, just very quickly on the future of work, even Santa, even Father Christmas has had to embrace remote working, I notice, because he is doing Zoom calls with children this year. Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, of course, as we all know, has set up a portal that can connect your child to Father Christmas via Zoom. Um, hey, Jimmy Wales is the Santa of the internet this month. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's a, this meeting is also recorded in Teams, so what will the AI say about our performance today? I didn't want to mention that, but exactly, <laughs> we're probably being rated now. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it will be, you know, it will take not a lot of time before a contra AI starts working for me and makes me look always interested and, you know, engaged and part of the meeting. And, you know, 
That would be AI very helpful that. already, I think. Exactly. Uh, I think it would like, look very engaged and interested all the time. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what will happen. Uh, what was the thing that was uh, interesting for you this month? Well, um, I'm, I'm still looking at all kinds of ways people get together online. I think it's a fascinating area to look at. And um, one thing that is happening is... I think roll out of all kinds of digitally enhanced representations of ourselves. I mean, look at me, almost no wrinkles, right? That's the glow of Microsoft Teams, you know? It's, it makes me look good. Wait, I need to step away from the camera for this comment. But on a, that's the very basic level. But if you look at Snapchat, where you can already play with your all kinds of filters. Um, this week, there was a guy, Don Allen Stevens, who works at DreamWorks, and he showed how using a general adversarial network, a GAN, by the machine learning team at SNAP, they actually trained a neural network on how to generate images that look like computer-generated characters of popular 3D animated movies. You really see somebody move and sing, and or look at all the virtual idols. I mean, there's, they're all the rage in some parts of the world. So these are real people who live stream behind an animated face. Or you could actually animate your own face. You know, we, we've seen those fake videos. Uh, 3D Universum in Amsterdam uh, did a splendid demo before where they do a live, you know, video face that moves while somebody talks. And they can now also live generate somebody's voice. So in the background, somebody's talking. And it's, you know, see, Microsoft won't catch me. There we go. That is super interesting, all these different things that are happening right now. But we've, uh, we now want to hand over the stage to our special guest today, which is Thomas Miller. So please, David, tell us a little bit more about him. Uh, while I will leave this stage and join our audience in the chat. So they can ask questions to Thomas, which I'm happy to um, hand over to David. See you in a bit and over to you, David. Thanks, Ina. Yes. So as you heard, everyone, our star guest this week that we're very excited about is Thomas Muller. Thomas is Managing Director of Fjord, which is a part of Accenture Interactive, where he's Global Design Lead. He has a brilliant chapter in the book, The Great Redesign, which is called Now is the Time to Design Our Futures. He's also a trend watcher, and we all know, I'm sure you know, the brilliant annual Fjord Trends Report. So Thomas is here to talk to us today about why design thinking can help us rebuild in the wake of the pandemic and how you can apply design thinking inside your business, inside your team to help you see what is next and respond to it. So without further ado, take it away, Thomas. Excellent, thank you, David, for that kind introduction. Um, it was a pleasure to participate uh, in in the book. So, wow. I mean, you guys started it out. What a year it has been. You know, the world, the world that we live in is facing a crisis, um, the likes of which it hasn't really seen in 75 years. When I just think about the depth and the severity of this crisis, um, you know, it comes into focus when we realize humanity is not dealing with just one, but ultimately with four mega crises simultaneously. We have the crisis of the economy, the pandemic, the environment, and a crisis of equality. To meet these crises head on, what we need to do is look beyond the horizons and actually start for planning for multiple possible, plausible, probable, 
And ultimately, you know, the high bar to reach is preferred futures. Designers should see their part in shaping these futures as both essential and maybe the most consequential opportunity that lies ahead of them. There are many design projects every week, every day, right in front of us. But the ultimate project is to build a better, a healthier, a more purposeful, and maybe hopefully a more equal future for all. So let's dig into this and see what's going on and how we can get ourselves all together on this path towards a better um, future. So first is the crisis of the economy. You know, when, when I look back, the, the last two decades of technology growth and innovation have generated enormous physical and digital clutter. We've all contributed to it. While economics and politics, capitalism and resources, technology and society have very long been entwined, the consequences of that entanglement have only much more recently burst into public consciousness. And ironically, driven by the very same technologies that made this interconnectivity really possible in the first place. So questions about capitalism's trajectory of endless growth with profit as really the only metric have moved from demonstrations on the streets to much more serious debate in companies' um, boardrooms. Now the clash between the technology industry and governments is more widely felt as tech giants have immense power, but no one can really agree on who should be held accountable. So today, we probably stand at a very, very monumental inflection point. While digital disruption accelerates the transformation of industries and companies, the resulting global economy, which is highly independent and interdependent, has seen results that previously were just absolutely unimaginable including the speed of innovation and how value is generated. Yet at the same time, we see the risks of reduced resilience across companies as a result of them being highly dependent on partners in their ecosystems. While some of you in the audience today probably studied the Great Depression of the 1920s and 30s, many of us personally experienced the Great Recession of 2008. I was in New York City at that time, and the subsequent rise of venture-backed lifestyle startups. Think, for example, of Warby Parker or of Evelyn. They, those kinds of companies, are far cry from established mega corporations. These startups, they kind of offered consumers a way forward through design and an increasing focus towards building a brand with purpose beyond promise and beyond profit. Some companies have really benefited during the last 12-year recovery, but many also have struggled to regain their footing and are even less prepared for the current economic crisis. At the same time, digital technology has been so widely adopted that its novelty factor has worn off. You know, And we have seen innovation reach a plateau, that kind of flat point in the S-curve before New products and services resulting from the innovation burst just simply become mainstream. Now, this situation we find ourselves in then raises a number of fundamental questions. Does this new product, this new service, this new brand deserve a space in my life and in the world? 
Is there a value exchange that's really going two way? Is it doing something more than just being a strain on the planet? You know, if the answer is no, then unsubscribing from that brand, from that service and deleting it from your life has never been easier to do than today. So for companies with the courage to recognize this crisis, there are many opportunities to reinvent themselves, but at the same time, there are challenges. For example, this crisis really questions the decade-old definition we've all had of business success, which is underpinned by the philosophy of profit as the only directive. So then secondly, we're still stuck in our homes, if we're lucky enough to be in our homes, we're stuck in the crisis of the pandemic. COVID-19 remains a global crisis, um, continuing to still evolve at unprecedented speed and scale. It certainly has created a universal imperative for governments and for organizations to take immediate action to really protect their people. It's now the biggest global event and challenge of our lifetimes. And adding to the challenges are the continued uncertainties about the progression of COVID-19 and the social, the political, and fiscal actions uh, that it continues to require from all of us. And as such, it's really changing our attitudes and our behaviors today and is forcing organizations to respond. However, the need to respond won't end when the virus's immediate threat eventually recedes. We have witnessed massive every one of us, massive behavioral changes at a scale and speed we've never really seen before, sparked by fear, accelerated by social media, and certainly encouraged by government. Um, these changes included the by now well-known and still practiced, you know, frequent hand washing, keep your distance, if you're lucky, working from home in some industries, and, and most importantly, also discouraging really bad behavior going out to the supermarket, hoarding of groceries, or even worse, um, toiletries. Reopening, as we have started to see in some parts of the world, requires more than just a return to normal, however. I believe the unpredictable and really long-lasting period that will follow this pandemic will feature really fundamental changes to the way we do business, as well as fast-changing cultural norms and behaviors. Now, the impact on economic activities as a result of the highly interdependent global economy I was mentioning earlier is really posing challenging choices for governments and global organizations, such as the World Health, the World Trade Organization, and the EU. At the beginning, remember, January, February, March, at the beginning of this pandemic, we started to see a range of potential scenarios based on the evolution of the virus and the nature of the social response. Each of those scenarios illustrated a different possible and plausible path for the pandemic and the impact on the world really around us. The first scenario envisioned a rapid remission of the virus. The disease is going to be contained, life returns to normal swiftly. Government measures work quickly to stabilize the economy. This clearly hasn't really happened in most places around the world. Then we had the second scenario, which envisioned the so-called flattened curve. Now in that scenario, the rate of infections is slowed, but it does not really go into remission. The economy shrinks in a near permanent way. Society bends, but it doesn't break, pulling together um, sustained government measures. 
we've gone in and out of this all over the world, increasingly putting more and more stress on people, families, you know, the generational bonds within families and businesses. Then the third um, scenario envisioned um, cyclical outbreaks when infections are controlled in past locations, but they keep spreading to new hotspots and then they rebound even in previous ones. Patients were thin in, in that scenario with social distancing, opening societal stress. Many places are dealing with this right now. I don't need to even look further and farther than across Germany or just even within Berlin where I'm right now. We are continuing to experience exactly that scenario. And then the fourth scenario envisioned really prolonged chaos where efforts to control the virus seem just useless. Governments and societies are strained to the point of breaking. The economy is limited to necessities only and inflation source. Now, the coming together of people, communities, businesses, and global organizations, the soon available or as of yesterday in, in the UK, available vaccinations and an important discourse around the ethics of their distribution, hopefully will enable us to avoid this fourth um, scenario. Now, the third mega crisis, without a doubt, remains the crisis of the environment. Despite COVID-19, our climate continues to change, as is the way we are thinking about it. Our concerns about global warming, about pollution and sustainability have experienced a dramatic cultural shift. You know, at some point, what was too big to do anything about has become quite personal. You only have to think back to 2018, people's growing anxiety and anger about the impact of plastics at that in that year on the environment was vented at the worst culprits. The companies behind single-use shopping bags, bottles, coffee cups, and drinking straws were held to account by the public and mainstream media. You know, it was not a surprise that in that year, Collins Dictionary even made single use its word of that year, saying that it describes items whose unchecked proliferation are blamed for damaging the environment and, and affecting the food chain. Then fast forward one year, in 2019, it wasn't enough for companies to simply acknowledge environmental concerns. Consumers began to expect commitment to be proven through actual actions, not just words. Organizations needed to redesign their business models to ultimately fit the circular economy where consumers are active participants and sustainability is really built into their products and services. And then also in late 2018, again, Greta Thunberg entered the global stage, really leading her generation in a push to heal and protect the planet for today's children and for future generations. Concerns about the environment have developed into a major climate crisis movement, which is now among voters' top priorities in many countries. Um, COVID-19 has largely occupied our public awareness globally, but the environment hasn't really left the headlines either. The possible, the quite possible interconnectedness between the crisis of the economy, the environment and the pandemic is increasingly capturing public attention. You know, look to China. China stopped importing and disposing of international waste as it just couldn't handle it anymore. California, 
became the first U.S. state to ban the use of single plastic straws in restaurants unless customers ask for them. And then in England, where David is, were 4.7 billion plastic straws, 316 million plastic stirrers, and a whopping 1.8 billion plastic-stemmed cotton buds are used each year. The Environment Secretary launched a consultation into the proposals to ban plastic straws and cotton buds within 12 months. The European Parliament also voted for a complete ban on a range of single-use plastics across the Union by 2021. That's next year. Many companies have already started to build ethics into their mission statements and propositions. Now, I think it's time that they also must support their words with actions and prepare for a new wave of regulations regarding sustainability and climate change. Anyone who ignores this, you know, is going to left is going to be left behind. Even those who are starting to address it now are already playing catch up. As we enter 2021, which is really around the corner, I think we have to see a major recommitment at the personal, corporate, national, and international level to protecting the environment and changing the trajectory we are on before it is too late. Now, this brings me um, finally to the fourth mega crisis, which is the crisis of equality. Um, you know, the death of George Floyd following his arrest by the Minneapolis police on it's only been May 25th of this year did put a much needed spotlight on the state of equality worldwide. Equality between genders and among races is a work in progress. The situation in the US has been highlighted and dramatized through the subsequent protests across major US cities followed, however, by a global outcry over racial injustice and police brutality. One of my colleagues at Accenture Interactive shared a week after the Minneapolis uh, killing very, very personal reflections with us, which are a powerful summary of the everyday crisis of equality. I'm going to read an excerpt um, from her thoughts that she shared with a wide group of colleagues. So this is how she goes. I have watched the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately kill black and brown people thanks to systemic inequities in North America. And now for a little over a week, I'm reminded daily that racism is an epidemic that has been killing us for far longer. The experience of black people that you've all witnessed in this last week are not new. This revolution is being televised, which is why you're all confronted with it. But these are just the ones that make the nightly news. This is not new to our black colleagues. This is our everyday. We expect that we might be lynched publicly and make no mistake. Things like this have happened to people you know. We live in fear, not just fear for our lives, which is bad enough, but fear that if we challenge someone, simply challenge someone at work, even constructively, we will lose our jobs, fear that our children will be treated poorly because they are seen as disposable, fear that our communities will remain disenfranchised and discarded. This is not new, and it's not an incident. My mother told me when I was younger that I would have to be better and smarter than the white people around because I'd have fewer chances to get it right. 
the world would not tolerate my mistakes in the same way that it would those of white people around me. And she was absolutely right. I've been on a call listening to black colleagues across North America share their experiences, their terror and their tears. This conversation may have started about Christian Cooper, George Floyd or Breonna Taylor and many others. But at its core, it is about the systems that exist that were designed to make sure that black people do not win. Now, these words from North America apply to many other countries and their own versions of inequality, systemic racism and a system designed to essentially maintain caste systems, though of course not labeled as such. The New York Times recently, a few months ago, described a caste system as an artificial construction, a fixed and embedded ranking of human value that sets the presumed supremacy of one group against the presumed inferiority of other groups. Now, maintaining this status quo, I think is not acceptable in this day and age, and it should not be the job of black and brown people to educate the white majority to solve racism. It is a collective responsibility to have a conversation about so that they're willing to learn. White people can help dismantle existing caste systems. If you believe what is happening is unjust, is unjust, then start to understand it and know why it is happening. It has been happening for a long time. And it is time for change. So why am I framing my essay to this book in this way? Aren't these problems too big to solve? Isn't this the job of someone else? You know, the problem with that thinking is it has gotten us exactly to where we are right now. So what if we can be part of the solution? How might we tackle one or some of these crises through our jobs with our clients? from where we are exactly right now? What if design can provide a map to the future? You know, while maybe your grandparents still don't understand what you do when you explain it to them, the good news is that the perception and understanding of design really has come a long way from the days when the term referred nearly exclusively to people working in fashion or maybe product design. In their 1978 book, Living by Design, Pentagram defined design simply as a plan to make something. Furthermore, they wrote, if a design is a plan to make something, then whether an individual or a group of people is concerned with the activity, a purpose is implied. I love the fact that a purpose is implied. Then fast forward to the September 2015 issue of the Harvard Business Review and its by now famous design thinking cover. You know, this issue made design and especially design thinking fashionable with CEOs and in their boardrooms as it was ultimately considered an essential tool for simplifying and humanizing. HBR declared the evolution of design thinking meant it was no longer just for products. Instead, executives were using this approach to devise strategy and manage change. HBR also educated its business audience how important it is to focus on users' experiences and especially the emotional ones. It promoted the importance of creating models 
models to examine complex problems. It also encouraged us to use prototypes as a way to explore potential solutions. And most importantly, it advocated tolerating failure. Failure is an important stepping stone to success. That was radical. And it was only five years ago. Now we continue to see, you know, tensions rising across the world and the search for value and purpose is gaining momentum everywhere. While we are faced with a new world filled with VUCA, you know, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, <clears throat> and ambiguity. But something else has started to emer emerge, quite magical. Select designers around the world have begun galvanizing around the idea of foresight. You know, as humans, we always have had a strong interest in the future. Motivational speakers tell us we can be anything we want to be as if we had complete control over our future. When you go to science class, it teaches us theories that persuade us the future is simply the result of known forces. And when you go to history class, it teaches us though outcomes and events, you know, were simply inevitable. So we try, we predict, and we design for that future right ahead of us. And sometimes we actually get quite close. You know, take a look at how the future was imagined in the 1950s, for example. The suburban family would travel by air taxi like the Jetsons from the US cartoon series. Or autonomous vehicles would move so intelligently that their occupants, that family, could take their eyes off the road and use the travel time for something else, like playing a cardboard game, for instance. Now, these images were imagined about 60 years ago, which is quite amazing. And in fact, as we know, we are verging every day closer to this vision of the future. You know, not far from where I live, outside of Berlin, Tesla is building a factory um, for their vehicles, including their vision around um, autonomous vehicles. But then at the same time, why do we get the future still wrong most of the times? You know, sometimes because we just simply don't enough, have enough of the facts. Other times because we didn't consider the facts correctly and we assumed we knew something we actually didn't. Like when we confused correlation for causation. So what is foresight? And could it be the key for us to find a way out of these current four crises? Could foresight even guide us into that great redesign, the map that humanity and planet Earth really need at this pivotal moment in time? The AIGA defines foresighting in this way. Foresighting is the detection of anything that is likely to disrupt business, social, or technological continuity. Foresight helps us to see that there is a range of possible futures, and that is the plural of future, futures. Good foresighting includes the articulation of consequences of action, or if we choose so, inaction. It also includes the articulation of how might we respond to the change. Consequences, or the how might we respond to the change, both of these are really key concepts. What we need to do right now is put not just good, but really exceptional foresight at the center of a redesign program for humanity and for the planet. If we do that, 
we might just have a chance to make this not just the redesign, but the great redesign. So foresight as a discipline has a few guiding principles. First, the future is not predetermined. Therefore, there cannot be any single predetermined future. Rather, there are infinite potential alternative futures ahead of us. Secondly, the future is not predictable. We could never collect enough information about the future to construct a complete model of how it would develop. At some point, therefore, the errors in our model would cause the model to move away from reality. And this is why we forecast multiple possibilities rather than predict a single future. And then my favorite, thirdly, future outcomes can be influenced by our choices in the present. So even though, even though we can't determine which futures among the possibilities will actually become reality, we can influence the shape of the future, which eventually happens with the choices we make today. It's therefore absolutely important that those choices be as well informed as possible. So to a curious and analytical and imaginative designer, you know, who thrives in systems, who thrives in service design, who thrives in design thinking, this line of thinking sounds quite familiar. A futures mindset is really a designer's mindset, just like design. A futures mindset is one that is open to possibility, that is prepared to iterate on what we know and is therefore adaptable to change. And change comes in a variety of shapes and sizes in the practice of foresight. There are many possible futures. And since we can't truly know what will happen, we can even play with articulating futures that we think might actually seem preposterous, where all the signs of the moment suggest otherwise, or that are preferable. But the best part is that we can start planning for multiple possible, plausible, probable, and as I just said, ultimately preferable futures where we recognize the happy path or the ideal state. So this is really at the end where I believe foresight might just be the right method for the great redesign because it's not intended to just be an academic exercise. Its goal ultimately is to be actionable. Lay out a plan that becomes actionable. Thoughtful and intentional action, you know, informed by the signals that we collect with a lot of discipline, grounded in facts and reason, but then at the same time, inspired by imagination is what we need most right now. The Institute of the Future puts it this way, by imagining all these possible futures, we can begin talking about which futures we want to live and work in, and then take practical steps today to make those futures more likely. So as designers, you know, let's take this opportunity and our role seriously. Let's be hungry and learn something new. Let's understand economics and the environment. Let's understand the epidemic and the pandemic. Let's bring conversations about inequity, bias, racism and systemic ignorance to this opportunity you know, this is our moment. This is our time. 
it's no longer enough for us to dream about the future. We actually can design our futures. So I think it's time to do this together because this is this is our time. This is the great redesign. So thank you, you know, um, for giving me the chance to um, contribute um, to the book and share a summary of the chapter um, in this format with you guys right now. Thomas, thank you so much for that. I'm just going to give you a second to unshare your screen and One then moment. we can dive into that um, inspirational uh, presentation. And you talked, I mean, there's so much food for thought in there. You talked about, you know, the four crises that you see us facing, um, the economic crisis, the planetary crisis, the crisis that is the pandemic and the crisis of equality. And those, I'm sure everyone listening would agree that those are four big, very persuasive, huge shared challenges we all face. Um, just drawing the camera sort of right back and starting right at the beginning. On a personal level, how convinced are you that we will seize this moment for a great reset? Or do you think, and I, I suspect from having listened to your talk, I, I have a sense of what you're going to say. Do you suspect we're going to miss this chance? Because of course, I, you know, I and many other people are concerned that we will end up going back to business as usual after the pandemic. And of course, the, ec the economy is going to be very, very difficult. And that's going to um, kind of motivate some of the worst instincts in people to think first about themselves and to, you know, uh, to, to encourage the populist kind of side of politics that we've seen across the last few years. How like optimistic are you, I suppose, is, is what I'm driving at. Hmm. You know, that's a, it's, 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 it's a great question. It's a fantastic question, David. And um, at the end of the day, if I were to pick, uh, what do you want? A scale from one to five or one to 10? On a well, scale of one to 10. <laughs> one to 10. Well, the problem or well, the beauty is I am an eternal optimist. Um, you know, my glass is always um, half full. Um, I, with, with what I'm seeing in work, but also in my personal life, um, I am I am at least uh, an eight. And I think why I'm so confident, even though the risk uh, for us is to quickly, you know, snap back to the way we did things before is, you know, choices that I see that my family is making, choices that I see that my friends are taking. But then where some of the biggest impact obviously is happening, choices that I see um, you know, some of our clients um, are, are, are making the fact that they are asking us not only about, you know, the next um, redesign, the next optimization of a touch point, but the fact that they are asking about, broadly speaking, how can we move from, you know, a world of customer experience to a world of the business of experience and their and the horizon is, you know, one, three and five years out gives me hope that they're actually realizing we need a plan for the future and we need to invest into making that plan for that future. Too many companies, you know, we can go all the way back to the Kodaks 
the, the blockbusters or the Nokia's. Just a few examples who completely, you know, did not buy into foresight. They did not um, declare a priority. They didn't make it somebody's or a small team's job. And most importantly, they probably didn't put budgets against it to plan for the future, not just the future that is 90 days from now, the next quarter, but the future that is, you know, 90 years out. Okay, that's a little bit too far away. I see enough signals from our clients really asking, what do we need to do now to be ready, um, you know, and, and lead in five years from now? And what are the choices we need to make right now? Help us scan much like Fjord does in our annual um, trends report, scan signals in society, um, in technology, in business, um, in humanity across the world and help us understand um, those signals by clustering them, by starting to identify you know, the themes um, behind these clusters. And then most importantly, you know, start to put evidence behind some of these clusters um, so we feel enough confidence that these are very, very early um, trends. Clients are really interested in that right now, which to me signals an attitude and a behavior towards we need to really um, be ready and change the trajectory. Yeah, which is great to hear. And when you hear even about, you know, the World Economic Forum, for example, which is hardly a bastion of radical thinking traditionally, when you hear about even them uh, talking now about a lot about stakeholder capitalism and we need a new model of capitalism and a new model of business, I agree, it does really feel that there is an appetite for change and a realisation that change is, is needed. We have to change. Now, yeah. look, I want to get more practical with you because I know you've got your, your you've got hugely powerful advice for people listening out there. So I guess this is a two-pronged question. You talked about the importance of foresight and increasingly brands and professionals are persuaded of the importance of that, which is great. Why is design thinking a powerful lens via which to do foresight? What does design thinking bring to foresight? And just super practical, the second half, you know, I'd love just one exercise or one tool or you know, one framework that people listening out there can use with their teams, you know, tomorrow or before the end of the year to just do a little bit of design thinking or take a design approach to their foresight for, for the year ahead. You know, even just something super fun, super quick. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, at the, at, at the end of the day, it is about um, starting with people, starting um, to really understand their emotional um, experiences and very quickly creating models to understand the complexity and moving to prototypes to understand both where we are now and where we want to go, what that path might look like and how that prototype for the future helps us to understand might this fail? Might this succeed? How might we um, get there? That mentality, when you um, bring that to a very simple exercise that you can plan with your team, um, you put people um, at the center of this. And people are ultimately, you know, it's us. We are on the planet. So the first step that I would recommend is, you know, set the scene. What are, the, what are your businesses? What are your team's uh, challenges? but also the industry in which you're in, what are the challenges that we're currently seeing? 
Step two, you know, horizon scanning. Scan for future signals and start to identify the key themes. Now you can ask somebody to actually do that as pre-work. Um, you can call, you know, trend spotters around the world like yourself or um, all of the good people um, at Fjord. But the important the importance is you got to have that evidence of signals on the horizon. Then you know, take that leap as a third step. Start to create, based on your challenge and the signals that you see, future scenarios and describe these scenarios. One, through storytelling, simple words. What would that scenario for us if we are an NGO, if we are a telco? What does that look like? How does that feel? How does that work um, in the future? But then take the next step. Um, Build prototypes from simple prototypes, people acting out that scenario, paper prototypes, or if they need to be fancy um, prototypes where technology, AI and other things um, are involved and start to understand, you know, who would support this um, scenario? Who would be the distractors and what will be the most likely hurdles that we face for that scenario um, to fail? And then, you know, as a final step, most of the times it's an initiative, it's a new business. Start to understand the potential of this scenario, the potential for it to change people's minds, the potential to have an impact on, on your business and what the roadmap towards that would be. So set the scene, scan the horizon, have fun, be imaginative, describe in words and pictures. You don't need more technology, that future. Begin to build prototypes for that future and use those prototypes to really challenge them. Is it a preferable? Is it a possible, a plausible? Is it preposterous? And if you decide which ones out of these future scenarios holds up the best against this initial test, you know, take that final step, assess it. Does it have potential and how might we get there? Thank you so much. That's some great advice for all you guys listening out there to do before the end of the year or do that exercise when you get back in January and help think about what lies ahead. Now, Thomas, you mentioned trends. We have a deep shared interest in trends, of course, and I'm sure the viewers all know the brilliant Fjord um, annual trend report. Um, I was just leafing through or paging through, scrolling through the 2020 trends. And there's some fascinating, I mean, of course, no, no trend watcher saw the pandemic coming, but the, there's some fascinating, very powerful trends in the 2020 report. Um, the, the many faces of growth trend, I kind of, we've kind of touched on that all about brand purpose, you know, and we've yeah. seen, and you talked about the crisis of equality. It feels like brands needing to take an issue on, on, on social issues and the big equality issues of the day is, is even more relevant now than when you, when you wrote that report back in, in 2019. First of all, the new trends um, are, you know, in the final finishing touches. Uh, we're releasing them in, um, I believe it is six days, wow. December uh, 15. So I'm completely under embargo. Everybody will chase yeah. me if I say anything about them. But they're going to be, um, you know, as as one of the founders um, of, of, of Fjord always says, this year are going to be the best ever. Um, I've heard that every year, but this year's, especially given what we've gone through over the last 
you know, nine months, um, they're going to be quite uh, consequential. And in many ways, the threads that started in um, in 2019 where ultimately the main meta theme was the search for value, you know, and then in 2020, where we dealt with um, realigning the fundamentals, um, it's going to lead us right into sort of like that next um, that next chapter. And the last nine months obviously were quite unusual. And what we had to do is pretty quickly throughout the year, um, we did digitally, you know, an update to the 2020 trends um, in light of um, obviously uh, the pandemic, um, the pandemic around the world. But, you know, I think they're going to be, as always, um, practical, um, informed ultimately by, you know, that unique situation um, that we are in of having thousands of designers um, in this family of designers around the world in more than um, 30 studios covering pretty much all continents, doing that horizon scanning, doing that clustering, doing that theme identification, and then all of that comes together. Um, I think they're going to be out there, um, practical. Probably six out of seven will be um, spot on, and usually one or two um, the teams call just a little bit too early, and it takes maybe another two or three years until it actually becomes um, a trend. You know this. It's uh, it's it's both the, the risk and the reward yeah. of engaging in 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 trend spotting and writing about what's to come around that corner. Yeah. Well. Okay. So next week, put that in your diary, everyone. The fuel trends are out next week, right? Six days from now. I cannot wait. It's always a brilliant report. And yes, I know all too well that feeling of a trend being maybe a couple of years, three years early, and you have to kind of return to it. Um, okay. We need to we need to wrap up, but super quickly. There's some people in the audience who have some questions, so let's just rattle through a couple of them because I know we're running short on time now. Um, question number one, Thomas. How do you see the interplay? between designers, engineers, and product managers? I mean, that's a big question, I suspect. Say that, say that again, between designers and? Um, between designers, engineers, and product managers. Yeah, you know, if I keep it to one word, um, absolutely critical. The world of um, silos and them not working together, um, that world is so long behind us. They need to be they need to be one part and they need to be, um, you know, together be thinking about both the user, the business, the technology, the viability, the feasibility and the desirability and that beautiful overlap in the center. It's not just the designer. It's not just the engineer and not just the product manager. They need to be joined um, by the hip in the center of that Venn diagram. Brilliant. Thank you. And OK, final question. Christian in our audience works in the event industry and he asks um, many people wish for the good old days to come back because they worked so well how can this impulse be changed um you know there's this there's, there's many parts of me that wish uh, wishes equally for that good old world of events uh, to come back you know next an amazing platform um, you know, Ina and her entire team has done a phenomenal job of shifting it into into this format. And the kinds of events we've seen um, this year, completely virtual, you know, we were all very skeptical at the beginning, but they 
they worked as good as um, as good as they did. Uh, I hope you know six months, nine months from now, when vaccinations have um, seen enough of an impact that the combination of what we did uh, virtually, you know, shy people having a hard time getting in a conversation in a physical event, suddenly in a virtual um, setting, being a lot more open to quick encounters and, you know, uh, serendipitous matching up. We will take some of the best of these virtual conference formats into real conference formats as well. Yeah, yeah, and I can't wait to see, and I know Monique is huge on this as well, of course, uh, uh, what the future of events is. You know, we all loved events. You know, they were they were a great part of our lives and they brought value to people. And I just can't, I'm so curious as to what the future is going to be, but I suspect some hybrid has to be the way to go and can be amazing and there can be huge benefits. Thomas, thank you so much, so much food for thought in all of that. We are running Thanks, out of time. David. Before we let you go, there is one last crucial journey you need to take. Um, it is time for the regular Next World segment of the show. So let's roll the credits for Next World. Uh, Thomas, listen to me. Imagine this. It is the near future. Amid an increasingly acute crisis on planet Earth, a crack team finalizes a daring plan to start a new chapter for humanity. They will travel along with 1,000 specially selected people far beyond the solar system to the planet next one. And there they will establish a permanent base, a new society, a new home for human beings. Thomas Muller, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the field of innovation and design, you have been chosen to be amongst those first thousand pioneers. But before, yes, exactly, exactly, be happy. But before you undertake your journey, you must answer five questions. Let's see question number one. Name one luxury physical object you want to take on your new home. Okay, I would take my Cervelo R5 road bike with me to stay fit, you know, and make sure that mental and physical health are um, perfectly aligned. I can't live without it. Oh, you know, you make my Dutch heart happy. I think we now have three bicycles on the planet, so we're going in the right direction. Um, and, and this year has been the year of bicycles. Even Paris is full of bicycle paths these days. So, okay, question number two. Which book should everybody read? Everybody should read The Politics of Design by Viktor Papanek. Um, it's a thick book, but it's a beautiful book. Together with some of these amazing essays, essays in The Great Redesign, I think it will prepare us to build that planet more just um, and start all over um, in, on the right foot. Okay, this, this is a real tip because none of us knew this book before or have read this before. We're going to read it. And this is a year of politics for sure. So we need to understand more of what our politics and design mean. Question number three. Create one law that bans something from next one forever. Okay, the law that I would um, institute is if your design isn't circular, it is not allowed. Everything on that new planet needs to be circular and sustainable. We're not going to have any waste. Okay, 
why wait for this planet? Why not do it here? You know, it's time. Pick a small country. Start. Organize yourself. Designers of the world. Anyway. Right. Of course. Exactly. Question number four. Name one tradition from planet Earth that should be replicated on next one. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big food person as well. Thank God I'm cycling. Um, a great tradition, uh, you know, in everybody's home, I hope, but also at work, we have is team breakfasts. And it's not just ordering some breakfast that somebody else prepared for you. Buy the food, make the meal together, eat together, build that culture. The food that you prepared is the food that you share, and that's the culture that you build. Team breakfasts, I want to have. So that means you skip your family breakfast and directly go to the office to have your team breakfast. Ah, priorities here, priorities. Double breakfast. <laughs> I, I get it, I get it. Okay, question number five. Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first thousand pioneers. Not your family, not your friends. One exceptional person that has to be on the team. So I'm going to build on the theme of food because we need more than just the breakfast. If I could, David, I'm sure is going to help with that. I would take Yotam Ottolenghi, the Israeli English uh, chef with me. We're going to have great flavors, um, great diversity, and everybody is going to appreciate, you know, planting their own, growing their own vegetables and making their own meals. Ottolenghi will be it. Oh, fantastic. We'll eat so much. And we have our bicycles to, you know, get it off again at the end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Thomas, for all your insights you shared with us today. Howard from the audience said it was our best session this year. So thank you so much for joining our show today. It no, was a pleasure you having you. you. And if you, the audience, uh, is watching this live and are interested to learn more about the Fjord Trends, which will be published next week, subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't done so yet to get more information and we'll keep you posted about this. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. Thank you for watching and also a big thank you to the team behind the scenes, Stefan, our producer, Merle and Juliane. And of course, our partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, our media partner, T3N, and our live stream and webinar partner, 23. Next time, We'll welcome Albert Wenger to our next stage. He's the managing partner at Union Square Ventures, a thesis-driven venture capital firm focused on investing in disruptive tech networks. The company's portfolio included uh, Twitter, Kickstarter, Behance, Foursquare, you name it. Wenger is known as an influential force behind New York startup scene and as a leading voice in the digital economy. He is the author of World After Capital and has also contributed to our next book, The Great Reason. So if you're still searching for something beauty and insightful to give away for Christmas, please visit our website, NextConfEU, or your local bookstore to order the German or English version, or both. I hope that all of you will have the chance to spend some time with your loved ones over the holidays, even if it's only virtually. I wish all of you a good start into 2021. It can only get better and it will, I'm pretty sure. Stay healthy. Thank you for watching today and hope to see you back here 
on January 20th with our guest Albert Wenger and the three of us. Fröhliche Weihnachten. Hmm. Heel, hele fijne feestdagen. Happy holidays. Thank <laughs> you.